You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan on a busy news day and a busy day for hockey fans. My goodness. Free agency and all this sort of stuff. But we won't talk about that necessarily, but... The Ottawa Senators just got Claude Giroux for three years. Incredible. Um, but that's for another time. That's for another time. Um, how bad is inflation? Well, uh, everybody was saying 0.75% hike. And now it's more than that. It's a full point in the overnight lending rate. Before the banks raised their rates to match that, I just did a quick posted rate check on TD and on various big six banks. They're in the mid fives, mid fours in some cases. I know posted rate, you can get a discount off that, but that's before the 1%, I believe. Um, text us at 71010. Text us at 71010. Try to go sort of, I, I want to know, like if you're a, a mortgage holder, and you're on a variable or a fixed, are you watching this very closely? Um, did you buy in the last six months with those extraordinarily low rates? And could more rate hikes put you in trouble? You don't have to give us all the details. I appreciate it's private information. But I get a general sense out there that there is a significant amount of anxiety about how high things are going to go. I think people bought homes and, and, and borrowed and did things on, on the understanding that these were extraordinarily low rates. And because of the built-in protection from the bank, you had to qualify for the higher rate anyway. So there is some caution there. But I don't think people also bet on doubling the gas bill and the utility bill and the food bill. And that's not an exaggeration. When we were above $2, Doubling maybe is a, a bit a bit of an exaggeration on gas, but gas gas has gone extraordinarily high. And if you're a commuter from the suburbs or you're going back to work after the pandemic and you're hit with interest rate hikes and gas tax hikes, gas price hikes, plus food price hikes, it is it's a lot. And I'm wondering how bad it is for you. Text us at 71010. Or give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. We're going, to, um, we're going to speak with Amanda Lang about what this means, what signal it sends. This is the largest increase in the rate in more than 20 years. Now, take that with a grain of salt because they hammered it down during the pandemic because they wanted to keep the money flowing. So the, the, low, the low of the low rate was absolutely unusual and unnatural. You know, I remember my first mortgage back in the 90s. I was, I think, in the sevens, maybe high sevens, and then it, it kept it it kept going down, nowhere near that uh, in other years. Here is Tiff Macklin, um, just a few moments ago on the rate increase. This is the governor of the Bank of Canada. An increase of this magnitude in one meeting is very unusual. It reflects very unusual economic circumstances. Inflation is nearly 8%, a level not seen in nearly 40 years. 8% inflation. 
he goes on to say why he's done this, why the bank has done this today. First, inflation is too high, and more people are getting more worried that high inflation is here to stay. Restoring price stability, low, stable, and predictable inflation is paramount. The problem, though, of course, is this will have a severe impact on the housing market. This will, uh, you talk to any real estate agent, uh, you know, when the camera's not rolling, um, um, when they're, you know, being frank, and things have really slowed in various markets across the country. I mean, they were absolutely going gangbusters. It was, again, an unnatural market. I am hearing things in my city in Ottawa that parts of the city, people are, people are putting houses up for sale, and in two weeks, they've had two or three people walk through. So this is one of these things where in certain markets, on certain circumstances, things really shut down quickly, knowing that more interest rates are coming, more interest rate hikes are coming. And then the overall anxiety about where the economy is going. You know, people, people have spent a lot of time talking about the recession, a pending recession. We're going to have a recession. You know, it's almost a psychological recession where people just start to pull back. And that makes it worse. Here is Tiff Macklem again on the Canadian economy being overheated. There are shortages of workers and of many goods and services. Demand needs to slow so supply can catch up and price pressures ease. Okay. Prices ease. It's not going to take, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. Last one from Tiff Macklem about the third point he wants to make about what he's, what the bank is doing today. Our goal is to get inflation back to its 2% target with a soft landing for the economy. To accomplish that, we are increasing our policy rate quickly to prevent high inflation from becoming entrenched. If it does, it will be more painful for the economy and for Canadians to get inflation back down. I think they underestimated, it's pretty clear they underestimated how quickly, um, how quickly things will go, how, cl- how quickly things went up, the prices went up, and uh, they didn't respond fast enough. They didn't respond fast enough. We'll ask Amanda Lang about that. Um, and now they're responding and it's very, very hard to get things back under control. You know, there's a bunch of things happening, right? Uh, we've got lots of employment worker shortages. We've got pent up demand from people sitting in their houses under lockdown for two years on and off. Um, there's, there's, there's pent up savings in some cases. So people are still spending and you've got until recently, record low interest rates. So borrowing was very, very cheap. So all of that sort of combines, if you look at the housing market, and then of course, Ukraine, the war and, and gas shortages um, that happened immediately. And now that's smoothed out, but the prices of course have gone up. What are the implications of Ukraine on food prices? All of these things are combining. We've learned anything over the last 50 years is everything's connected. Everything's connected. You can't do one thing without it having an impact on something else. And I think we're seeing that. We're seeing that. Here is Justin Trudeau today on the interest rate and inflation 
and the economy. Of course, the uh, Bank of Canada uh, makes its decisions independently and is working very hard uh, to counter inflation. At the same time, however, we have to highlight, as I said earlier, how the Canadian economy has recovered and bounced back from the pandemic. He is trying to be positive and uh, things are cooking out there. There are positive things. There are positive things. Politicians always want to take credit for the positive things. That's right. Um, but, you know, if you're living in the uh, 905 or St. Catharines area or outside Montreal or in the West and you've got a commute and you um, have to, you've got a family and you're single income or, um, you know, and it, it touches everyone. It touches everyone. You are not feeling like, you're not feeling like things are great. I know the prime minister is, his job is to, po- to be positive about the economy. Um, here's a micro example of where it is. I'm already at $400 a month just on interest at 2.25%. I have left less than 200000 left to pay. The banks are thieves. That's from Chris. Chris is at 2.25%. And that's going to go up with more, more payments to come. Lots of people in that circumstance. Amanda Lang, after the break, stay with us. Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. Um, it's been quite a day for anyone looking at mortgages and, uh, you know, a significant historic rate hike, really. Uh, a full point. Many people expecting 0.75. Amanda Lang's with us. I, I want to get to Amanda in just a second. Um, I just want to read one quick text here that speaks to the what people are facing. Um, this is Kathy in Nepean in the Ottawa area. My mortgage is due in September. I'm turning 70 and still working. With all the increases, I don't see me retiring anytime soon. Also, the government makes us change our RSP riffs, even if we're still working. Totally unfair. That's sort of the anxiety that people are feeling, Amanda. Uh, I want to start sort of macro. Um, what does it say, a, a full point versus a smaller hike at this point? What does it say about where the economy is going? So it really signals, um, Graham, that the, the Bank of Canada wants to be seen as being serious. So they're saying, uh, we're not doing anything moderate here. We are being aggressive. Now, to put it into context, where we land is at 2.5% uh, with the overnight lending rate. That'll put, of course, mortgages up more than that. But that's still in the neutral zone. Remember, 2 to 3% for the central bank should do nothing, either positive or negative, to the economy, which means if what they're trying to do, and they are, is slow the economy in order to slow inflation, they're going to have to go a lot higher. They're going to have to get above 3%. So you're now seeing expectations out there by economists that we're at 3.5% um, relatively soon. So those those listeners who are, are already feeling the pain now should actually, unfortunately, brace for another full percentage point higher and what that does to all of their debt. Right. Uh, 
more and more we're, we're now hearing today economists saying soft landing, no recession, maybe not on the table. We are heading to a recession. And when um, that sort of harder language, like it's 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 going to be more difficult, people hear that. Um, and how, how long would it take to get inflation back to 2%, like you said today? That That seems like a long way away. The real challenge is, as we all know, a lot of the factors driving inflation aren't controlled domestically. So uh, this really has been a supply side, so-called mm-hmm. inflation spike. So we, could, we literally couldn't get our hands on things, so we paid more for the things we could get. Um, that does not have anything to do with demand. Then you throw into the mix that demand did come back at the same time. All the bank can control is the demand side, what you and I do. Uh, so it, it will be a little bit lopsided. It's going to be a little bit clumsy because we can't control the fact that there is a war in Ukraine and that there are still supply chain issues, if we can believe it, from the pandemic, that we're still seeing a mess everywhere. The bottlenecks at the airports actually are a really good kind of lens for most of us mm-hmm. on what's happening inside the business world. That same kind of miscalculation about how things would return and when health would be back, businesses all over have done that. And so we're feeling the pain of that. And our bank can't do anything about it. So Unfortunately, we are headed to a period where we got a brace for a downturn. Now, we, I think it's important to keep it in the context. Things are pretty good. The economy is in relatively not as good as some of the data would, would suggest, but it's in relatively good shape. So we're not sounding any big alarm bells. It is a real time to look at your personal situation and think, what can I do? What do I need to do? Don't be whistling here past this one. Like You have to really sit down and say, this is going to get worse before we get out of it. There's no question about that. Where are we at as a family or as a individual, knowing what's coming? Coming. What mm-hmm. does that mean? Uh, exactly. I had a good question on the text board here. Uh, what was Prime at prior to March 2020? It's a good reminder. Like we were more moderate. We were still low. We weren't rock bottom, right? No, that's right. And in fact, our central bank got out in front of some uh, off of zero, right? We got up to 1%. Uh, kind of heading back to more normal territory. Other central banks ha- didn't hadn't done that, which gives them you know a little bit less maneuverability if they ever needed to lower again. There is a case to be made here that some of what we're seeing by way of the inflation in the world is from the you know 15 years of easy monetary policy, the stimulus that everybody put in place after the credit crisis and never took away. Remember that we never really got back to what we would consider normal. So maybe we're paying a bit of that price and it came at a, in a perfect storm with a bunch of other factors. But I think you make the, the, the right kind of assumption that it does come down to you, your family, what you can do, because it is everything else, frankly, is beyond our control. So and, now is the time to kind of only look at yourself. Don't look at your neighbor. Your neighbor doesn't matter. Look at your own stuff and figure out what you need to do. And I like your airport analogy because there's big demand, problems with supply and problems with employment. Yeah. Um, and 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 problems with meeting that demand, and also obviously cost factors, and then cascading problems through the entire trip, be, because those things we assumed were there are not there. And you could you could apply that micro to to, to wide swaths of the economy. That's your point, I think, right? Absolutely. And I mean, we I mean, you've covered all of these stories. It's everything from the rental car industry that said, "Oh, a pandemic, we're going to shut her down. Nobody's going to rent cars." Well, that turned out to be. 180% wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It was absolutely wrong, 180 degrees. We saw that in industry after industry, and even really smart companies like Amazon 
that in the middle of the pandemic took on massive warehousing space because they thought our behavior would stay the same forever. I've been amazed, actually, at how poorly planned businesses and government entities have been. They're just, they just don't seem as well run as we all assumed they were. It feels uh, like a scramble. A big price. Yeah, it yeah, feels like so a nobody scramble. Could foresee it. Nobody could say, well, people are going to renew their passports. It's going to probably therefore happen in a big bubble. Let's have triple the people we would normally have because they're all going to do it at the same time. That doesn't seem like that would have been that hard to forecast. No. So I, I hope we do a bit of deconstructing. Um, I know companies will have to because their shareholders will demand it. But I think we will with governments too and say, Stop pointing fingers. How did this happen so we don't do it again? Let's make sure we actually plan ahead a little bit better. And that's where I'll come back to the individual. Plan your own life. It's really easy to get distracted by, you know, what does it mean if a recession comes? It might not mean anything to you and your family. It really might not. If your job is not at risk, it may just be an opportunity. So don't get spooked and don't, you know, worry if you don't have to. You have to just look at your own stuff. And I, I would say the same about the housing market, which is a lot of people can get caught up in, oh, house prices are falling. It may not matter to you at all. And you could still sell your house today. Yes, it's less than six months ago, but it'd be a great price. And if it is a great price, be happy with that. Yeah, it I was does, gonna... The micro matters. Yeah. And before you, before you go, I wanted to talk about housing because we were seeing things in, in, in markets all over the country, uh, rural, small town, big cities, east, west, you know, that, that were unnatural. It, it, yes. There must be some kind of a correction. I, I know it's happening now. It absolutely is. And we're, so we're seeing prices in some of those markets that were driven by, again, short-term trends that will reverse. Uh, so, you know, the, not, the those suburban and even beyond the rural markets that got way out of whack, those will come back. The big debate now, and it's, it's one to watch, is to what extent a genuine shortage of supply in housing, and we know we have one, by one estimate, right, five million in the mm-hmm. next eight years has to be built, and we're only going to build two uh, if we if we do build the two. Uh, that shortage could keep prices robust in cities for sure. But you should see a, a moderation everywhere because it got frothy, and we could see that in the buying behavior and the way things were happening. Uh, how low will it get? Well, we just heard from the housing regulator this week that they don't actually see a terrible scenario. They see another sort of five percent, maybe ten percent downside. So. We don't have to worry too much if we think they're right, but some markets will fare worse than others for sure. Great to talk to you, Amanda. Thanks for this. It's such a pleasure. All right. That's Amanda Lang. Uh, always great to have her on, especially on a day like today. Just extraordinary uh, what's what's going on. And great advice, too, as well. I know she's not in the advice business, but, you know, it, it is, especially in the information age where everything's at your fingertips, um, to get sort of overwhelmed by things, you know, like... Um, we're going into a recession, interest rates are going up, you know, look at your own circumstances and have they changed significantly by these moves today over the last few weeks, last few months. And if they haven't, if they have, what can you do about it? Right? Like, do you, are are you, are you, do you have options to cut back your expenses? I appreciate when in an inflationary age like this, it's very, very difficult to do that. And the other thing I think that what Amanda was saying is like, you know, like if you're going to make a macro decision, uh, don't do it hastily and don't do it based on assumptions around you and that things are going to get bad because, as she said, a recession may not affect you. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. When we come back, an extraordinary day in Washington again. Yes, the January 6th hearings.
This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Glad you're with us, everyone. Thanks for being here on this Wednesday, July 13th. We are just cooking along here halfway, partway through July. Partway through July. Uh, I don't know about you. I was, uh, after the show yesterday, I was just riveted uh, to the January 6th hearing. And not for the... This hearing, the simplicity of this hearing and clarity of the testimony stands out for me. It is focused, it is tight, and they can attack it all they want, those on uh, Mr. Trump's side. Um, it, Mr. Trump understands how to communicate on television, and so do these people. Uh, this this uh, is thoughtful uh, deconstruction of what happened. Something stuck with me uh, yesterday. I think some of the most powerful testimony came from a man named Stephen Ayer, regular guy from Ohio. He had a 20-year job making cabinets at a cabinet-making company. Um, he was consumed by social media and Mr. Trump and following Mr. Trump and following all of the supporters of Mr. Trump came down on January 6th and walked in with the crowd into the Capitol, convicted of a trespass, so a minor offense. All he did was walk in and walk out. Lost his job, had to sell his house. Well, let's listen to him, what he had to say yesterday. Basically, you know, I lost my job. Um, since this all happened, you know, uh, pretty much sold my house. Um, so everything that happened with the charges, you know, thank God, uh, a lot of them did get dismissed because I was just holding my phone, but at the same time, I was there. He goes on yesterday talking about how it changed his life. So, I mean, it definitely, it, it changed my life, you know, uh, and not for the good, definitely not for the, you know, for the better. And what does he think about Trump still saying the election is stolen? It, ma- it makes me mad because I, I was hanging on every word he was saying. Everything he was putting out, I was following it. I mean, if I was doing it, hundreds of thousands or millions of other people are are doing it, or maybe even still doing it. Larry Haas, former White House official, author, and senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, joins us now. Mr. Haas, what struck you about yesterday? Uh, there There were a number of things, but that stood out for me, and I know there were other things. What was your take on yesterday's testimony? Well, I think it was two things. First, along the lines of what you're saying, just this um, expression in a sense of mass hysteria. Uh, uh, A person in the White House uh, tweeting, uh, speaking, and a loyal band of supporters from all around the countries. In, around the country, in essence, taking orders from him. Uh, first, it was believing him that this election was stolen. Then it was literally uh, getting in your car or getting in your truck, uh, maybe uh, bringing some weapons with you and actually coming to Washington to try to overturn an election because an individual who you don't know personally has told you to do this. And all the consequences that uh, come with that, uh, as in the case of Mr. Ayers, who you uh, spoke about a moment ago. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, once again, a further expression 
of just how isolated Donald Trump and what I heard somebody refer to yesterday as team crazy. Yeah. That is the outside advisor, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone were because uh, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, uh, uh, explained in his testimony that he, too, went to the president and said, there is no evidence of fraud. You lost this election. Every person who was holding an official position in the White House was telling him this. He did not want to hear it. And he relied completely on a bunch of deranged people from outside the White House who he was inviting in and who he was taking advice from. Not only were they speaking nonsense, they that extraordinary hours long scream fest uh, mm-hmm. accusing the lawyers of not being strong enough and. And that, that's when that infamous tweet late at night went out, it's going to be wild, come on January right. 6th. It's, it's, a, it's, right. a, it's an incredible window into what it was like after the election and before January 6th. Well, that's right. And when you mentioned the fact that it was all about these people from the outside uh, blaming the, the White House uh, lawyers and others for not being strong enough, what you take from that is this had absolutely nothing to do with the truth. This had to do with we will do anything it takes to retain power, which is completely anathema, by the way, to more than 200 years of our history and the peaceful transition of power. So um, I know it's, we've been reminded of this so many times, but I don't think we can be reminded enough of how dangerous this situation was, how out of character for the country this situation was, and how the danger continues uh, into the future because we still have such a large contingent of people around the country who continue to believe that the election was stolen, who continue to be loyal to Donald Trump, and that it also includes Republican members uh, who are currently sitting in Congress. And they're not even watching. They're not even they're, they're trying to dismiss all of this as just a partisan attack and, uh, you know, an attack on Trump. And that, you know, I, I didn't see any of those Trump supporters yesterday who have now turned being attacked by anyone. Uh, I thought the tone of the questioning was very, very careful and fair. Why did you come down here? Well, you know, what drove you to do that? What did you think about it afterwards? And the fact that Ayers went and apologized to various police officers who were in right. the room, a very powerful moment. Do you have any sense that um, the hardening of the lines here on this issue in America, is there any movement at all or is it getting worse? Because every time I think about this, you know, I think Five years ago, it was the worst it was going to get. And that looks like a picnic compared to what it is now. Well, I'm of two minds of this. I mean, I certainly I fear the fact that we do have so many people in America who just dig in further. The more evidence comes out against President Trump and Team Crazy and some of the Republican uh, lawmakers currently serving in Congress. So uh, that's the pessimistic side. On the other hand, there are more elected officials 
who are taking on Trump in the sense of, you know, putting all their efforts and all their money behind candidates around the country who uh, are opposing the Trump-backed candidate. And Mitch McConnell's doing that in a big way, and former Vice President Pence is doing that in a big way. And there are, there are those efforts, and I, I take them seriously. And then the other thing I would say is just what you mentioned, these two individuals who testified yesterday, who turned at some point. Mm. And one of them, when asked the question, do you believe this election was stolen? And he said, you know, I wish he had said absolutely not. But he said, well, a lot less so. There were all these lawsuits. Every single one of them lost. So I, I do wonder whether it's beginning to chip away at at least part of that of that a loyal group of Trump followers. And, you know, if you go from, let's say it's, uh, you know, 30 to 35 percent of, of Republican voters, uh, if it starts going down to, you know, 25 to 30 percent of Republican voters, I, that's a big deal. So yeah. I do see some reasons for hope. But but definitely, it, I am still terribly, terribly concerned by how many people in America still are loyal to Donald Trump and still believe the election was stolen. Barry Haas, great to have you on. Thanks so much for your perspective. Delighted to be here. Thank you. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. We're back in just a moment. Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I hope you're having a good day. We're mid-July 2022. We're talking about more shots and more arms in Ontario and around the country, inevitably. A um, fourth COVID vaccine to those aged 18 to 59 during a seventh wave, we're in a seventh wave of the pandemic. I think it's fair to say it is not over. Uh, obviously, infections are going up again. And yes, uh, it is uh, different. It is, um, uh, we are well through um, the, uh, it, it appears the most severe part of the pandemic, um, but it, it, is, it is lingering. Let's listen to Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, just a few minutes ago, uh, talking about the move in Ontario to add another booster. Millions of Ontarians have not received all their recommended vaccinations. Five million Ontarians have yet to receive their first booster, and over 1.6 million Ontarians at the highest risk for severe outcomes have not received their second. That's Kieran Moore, Dr. Kieran Moore. So the highest risk. Joining me now, Dr. Um, Isaac Bogosh. Um, he, he mentioned highest risk, Dr. Bogosh. What was he talking about there? And, and for everyone who uh, is listening, who has their shots, uh, maybe even a third shot, uh, should they be uh, planning to go out and get the fourth right away? Or is this, um, does this vary depending on your condition? Yeah, so there's, yeah, good point. So a couple of things. One is highest risk. Highest risk really means people who are on the older end of the spectrum, typically people over the age of 60, but really 
those over the age of 80 for sure. And, and of course, those with underlying medical conditions that put them at risk for severe infection. That's what he's talking about when he says highest risk. And then to your second point, um, you know, a lot of people have had a third dose of a vaccine. Many of those individuals have also had COVID as well. The question is, do they need to run out and get a third dose right now? And the answer is, like, sadly, it's complicated. You know, we don't want this to be complicated, but nuance is important. Earlier on in the pandemic, it was relatively straightforward. Get your first dose, get your second dose, you know, easy peasy. Mm -hmm. Now we have to think about things like age, underlying risk factors, prior COVID infection, who are your exposures? Um, You know, are you living under the same roof as anyone with uh, risk factors for severe infection? You know, did you have a prior infection? And if so, when? All these other factors will really help determine whether or not you should get a fourth dose right now or whether it might be okay to wait a month or so, maybe two months until updated vaccines are coming through the pipeline that are really geared toward the Omicron variant. How um, how concerned are you about what's happening right now? Well, I just think when you've got different provinces with different policies and various public health leaders at federal, provincial and municipal levels saying slightly different things with various political leaders at federal, provincial and municipal levels saying slightly different things. Then you've got different pundits saying slightly different things. Like, what is this? Eventually, it just causes confusion. And people tune out. People tune out. And it also generates mistrust. And, And again, this is a time where you need the utmost trust in public health, right? There's going to be a time where public health says, you know what, hey, it's a good idea to put masks back on. Maybe there's no mandate, but they recommend putting masks back on in indoor settings. And you'd want as many people to put those on. You might say, hey, you know what, we're going to have a big vaccine drive and it's time to get your vaccines. You want people to, to listen and to adhere. You, you know, maybe there's a time where you say, listen, if you're sick, stay at home. You know, like if you really want to have the best impact and the most impact, you really have to have public trust and public buy-in. And I think we lose a lot of that with a lot of the interprovincial differences and the mixed messaging that we're getting. And it's also, uh, it's been politicized and people are campaigning on various points of view, uh, both, uh, uh, all all parties are doing this. Um, Did you think we'd be here at this point? Or is this again teaching us that, you know, we just don't know until it happens. Like this thing is, you know, it's, it's very complex. It is complex. And I think there's room for uncertainty and and communicating uncertainty. You know, we all knew this was going to be politicized. We saw how this was unfolding uh, early on. Um, It's, I don't know if this is okay, but it's not as bad as it is in the United States, although they're hardly the litmus test for success. But still, it is an issue. It is an issue here. And uh, and it's a problem. It is a problem because it sort of leads into exactly what we were discussing a second ago, right? Mixed messages, confusion, and mistrust in public health. And, and you know, I think if we're honest and transparent about what we know and what we don't know, um, give good, clear, data-driven recommendations, appreciate and communicate that these recommendations will change with time as new data emerges, I think we'll be in, in a good spot. Yeah. And and everybody, uh, when you hear more shots, cases going up, there's that anxiety about what's school going to be like. Are they going to keep schools open? Are they are, are you know are 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 harsh measures coming again? 
I, I just wonder whether that, that can ever, uh, never say never, I wonder if that can be on the table in this context, um, given the stress the economy's been under over the last two years, and whether people would even pay attention to it. Agree in full. I mean, I, I can't imagine shutdowns of businesses or restrictions of businesses or shutting down schools. I, I can't I can't imagine that mm. happening. I mean, we have the tools to prevent that from happening. Of course, we're not going to stop a wave, but we can blunt a wave and we can create safer indoor spaces. And I just think it would be a complete failure if we ever saw the degree of restrictions that we were under prior uh, and earlier on in the pandemic. Uh, I mean, listen, we can debate and there'll be endless debates and arguments about which policies were right and wrong and which worked and which didn't. But looking forward, I can't see us in a situation where you'd have to close schools or you'd see a policy directed at school closures. Now, I mean, not to get into the weeds, you know, there might be some students who just can't go to in-person learning for a variety of reasons. There have risk factors. They go to come home to a family with risk factors and obviously hybrid approaches, I think, are extremely important to give people options. But I can't see the same degree of restrictions that we've seen in the past. It's not 2021. It's not 2020. We're in a much better place now. Yeah. How's your hospital, Dr. Bogash? How, how, how are how staffing, like how stressed is it? Yeah, in general, healthcare across the province, I would even say across the country, is mm-hmm. very similar in that, you know, even though yeah, case numbers are going up and yeah, there is a bump. There truly is a real small, but it's there. It's a real bump in hospitalizations related to COVID. Even in the absence of that, we just, we just don't have enough healthcare providers in healthcare right now. A lot of people left the profession. Um, people are working less hours. People have been bur- are burnt out, and it's just it's been a very hard, very tough sector to be working in. Yeah. So it's busy and it's understaffed. And uh, obviously, we, we hear about you know the provincial leaders meeting and federal leaders meeting and stuff. We 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 really need a coordinated and sustained uh, support for healthcare. This is we need long term solutions. Obviously, some short term band aid fixes would help, but let's let's really focus on sound long-term solutions to really beef up our healthcare sector because we we really need it. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, great to have you on as always from Toronto General Hospital. Appreciate this. Have a great day. You too. So there you go. Shots are becoming available. When we come back, our political panel, The War Room, is on the way. Stay with us. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host Graham Richardson. Welcome back to the show. In the depths of summer, there's not a lot of politics to talk about. Not this summer. Lots going on. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that misleading politics. What's really important here? Spreading it online unequivocally. The War Room. The War Room is assembled. Assemble War Room. Uh, Zane Velge, a political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather. He formerly worked with Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi and Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. He's on the line. Tom Mulcair, of course, 
Uh, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data. Abacus Data. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Hey, good, good to be with you, Graham. Uh, Graham, by the way, I mean, word on the street was you were in Newfoundland, and here I thought the biggest celebrity I could run into was Tom Mulcair on George Street, which I did once before. I mean, who knew the Ryan I've still Reynolds got the pictures today. <laughs> we had a fabulous time. Now, were you in? Are you in St. John's? I was. I flew back the same day you did. Apparently, uh, you made the rookie mistake of going through Montreal. Not wise, my friend. Yeah, Not no, we uh, we Toronto. paid the price for that. We paid the price for that. But it was a great time. Uh, welcome to you all. I want to start with Tom. Um, basically, Tom, if anybody hasn't seen it, uh, check out his column on ctvnews.ca. Harper takes out Brown, essentially. I'm being a bit too simplistic. but No, that's about it. That's no. about it. That's about Harper's people and Harper wanted Brown out to, to hurt Sheree and to help Pierre Polyev. Defend yourself, Mr. Mulcair. It's a great column, and you know more about these kind of inside-outside politics or inside parties... Uh, at this particular juncture, why would he want to do that, and how does it hurt Sheree? If you talk to people at the highest level of the Conservative Party, they'll all tell you the same thing, that uh, there's not a lot of love lost between Jean Charest and Stephen Harper. Harper, of course, uh, doesn't like the progressive brand of conservatism that Charest represents. The last time, during the race that was ultimately won by Aaron O'Toole, Charest had gone so far as to record his advertising. Uh, you know, his all of his ads were, were prepped and they actually became public at some point. But what happened was there was still a cloud over him with regard to an investigation by the anti-corruption police in Quebec. There was no way he could make a go of it, but it did get out that he had tried to talk to Harper and do the right thing and at least advise him of what he was going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And apparently it didn't go very well. I mean, Harper was not at all enthralled at the idea of Harper, oh, sorry, of of Charest or anybody from the Mulroney era, that whole type of conservative is not what he wants. He built a new party that is socially conservative, that is rigidly conservative with regard to its economic doctrine. And this is the ultimate test of whether or not the party was going to be open to both sides that were brought together by Peter McKay and the progressive conservatives, of course, Harper and the Canadian Alliance and uh, all the what was left of the Reform Party, etc. So what we, what we have here with regard to Patrick Brown, the, the obvious target was Brown, and they had a whole story they were going to tell around that. They had a so-called whistleblower whose you know, testimony hasn't been looked at in court. This is ultimately stuff that is under the purview of Elections Canada, not a political party. If and it was wasn't unanimous, here. right? It wasn't <clears throat> unanimous, and it no, was a drastic it, move to remove him, but it's done. It's, it's capital punishment. And the guy didn't even get a chance to give his side, and they're acting like judges in their own case. I mean, these are all the basic rules. So essentially, they threw out, they gave the heave-ho, of course, to Patrick Brown. But Patrick Brown landed on Jean Charest, because Charest's only plausible path to victory, of course, was getting the second choice votes of Patrick Brown. We all know that, his only math. He had put out a paper, Charest Camp put out a very good paper on July 4th, just a couple of days before all this happened. Mm -hmm. And Charest was describing what he was calling a path to victory. Well, to me, Graham, it's almost as if the Harperites and the people who still, you know, control everything in that party looked at this and said, oh yeah, Charest still got a path to victory? Let's blow it up. And that's what they did. Now, what's interesting is to see that unthinkingly, they might have actually created an anybody but Poiliev movement. Because when people watch, you know, the type of stunt that was being played here, it might or might not make it to court. If Patrick Brown gets to court with Marie Anne, it will be a great show. I'm bringing popcorn yeah. to watch this thing, Marie <laughs> Anne, you know, dis dismember 
uh, this so-called whistleblower, but be that as it may, I think the whole thing is unseemly. In our system of government, we don't get a direct vote for prime minister, unlike the Americans who get a direct vote for the president. It's through the party system, and it's an essential part of our democratic institutions. And to have this type of move countenanced by a party, at least there's some hope that the courts might get a chance to look at it. But I'm not even convinced anymore, because as you said at the outset, it now looks like pretty well the whole uh, Patrick Brown campaign, perhaps including Brown himself, might be moving over to Charette, subject to whether or not they can actually get the thing to court. Tim Powers, what do you think about all of that? Because it does look like it doesn't look right. It looks odd. And it seems to me that it would be a high risk to basically favor Polyev in the middle of a, a campaign and do something like this, which says to me there might be something to this, uh, that, that he had done something wrong. But at the same time, Tom's points are fair. Like, this looks kind of like a backroom execution. Well, the point is Tom can make that argument, right? And it, it is a believable enough argument that people will accept it. I great respect to Tom. I, I don't buy the argument for two reasons, and there are two people involved who dissuade me of believing that. And those are the two people at the top uh, who would have been key figures in this decision-making process, that being Ian Brody, who, yes, was uh, Stephen Harper's chief of staff. But, uh, Graham, you know Ian. I believe Tom mm-hmm. does as well. Zane might, too. Uh, Ian's an independent thinker, uh, and he uh, he is a person of integrity. And, uh, yes, he worked for Stephen Harper, but doesn't mean he's his puppet, nor is he Pierre Polyev. The other is Rob Batherson, the president of the party, and he at some point would have to agree to all of this. And Rob comes from the progressive conservative wing of the party. He came to Parliament Hill to work for Peter McKay. So, um, but that's such inside baseball. Uh, Tom can make the argument that he does, and from the outside, it, it certainly could be that way. And frankly, it doesn't matter um, to uh, to the to the greater outcome. The bigger concern for me, for Mr. Charest, other than you know the, this take out and, and whether it's roots are with Harper or not is what the laying on of hands of the Patrick Brown campaign may do to him with other swing voters in the race uh, who may not have been Pierre Polyev aligned, uh, but we'll find what Mr. Brown is accused of as unseemly. Sometimes when they lay your hands on your shoulders, Graham, it's uh, not the golden horseshoe you receive, but rather the kiss of death. Yeah, and and Zane, I noticed the Globe and Mail making the very sharp point that uh, Brown is playing the victim again, and I'm sure this is all just being unfair to Brown, but these things tend to follow him these questions about his choices, and we can make arguments about whether it was the, a capital offense or not. Um, and, and of course, the Liberals and the NDP just sitting there with their hands behind their heads, with their feet on the desk, absolutely loving this implosion. What, what do you think about where, where this goes for the leadership after this mess? Oh, this is not good news for the Conservative Party. I think that point has perhaps been made many times over the course of the last week. Because if you think about it, if you game it out, right, you, you mentioned the word capital punishment, so did Tom. The perception right now with what we know is that this was capital punishment, ending someone's leadership opportunity for what seems like a parking ticket mm. or a speeding fine. And even if that isn't true, to, to uh, Tim's point around the credibility of the individuals who've made the decision, the perception certainly reigns true, that there's a story arc, as Tom has beautifully put in his point, uh, in his, uh, his his piece on CTV News, that this is possible. So if it is true that this was a, a you know, 
a job from the inside to effectively get Patrick Brown out. It shows you how desperate they are to move away from the red Tory style that they have uh, run the last two elections and have absolute certainty that they get to control their path. Mm -hmm. And if it's false, they're opening themselves up to this immense brand damage uh, regardless. So it shows that this is a party, and this is not my party, but I said this last week, that this is a party that is one of the main institutions to get your hands on democracy to control this country. And I, the damage that this incident, this situation, controlled or otherwise has done to the party is, is very, very significant. I got to take a quick break. We're going to come back with all of you in the war room. I want I want one more question on this, and I want you to think about it in the break and whether whether this party, whether this thing is over. Is this over? And then we'll move on to interest rates. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. The War Room political panel is here. Zane Velji, Tim Powers, Tom Mulcair. I posed the question we were talking about the conservative leadership race. Uh, given Mr. Brown's departure, abrupt, his execution, his removal. Uh, Tim Powers, uh, I want to start with you. Is this over? Uh, is this Pierre's party? Well, I don't know if it's Pierre's party, but it could certainly looks like it's going to be Pierre's victory. The only wild card, Graham, is what if there's a Patrick Brown-like incident that happens to to uh, Pierre Polyev? Still two months to go. A lot can happen. But barring some major surprise, yes, it is likely his to win. Tom, to lose, sorry. To lose, yeah. And, and he, uh, Tom, you had talked about the path that uh, the Charest supporters saw. Is that... Is that right. now gone with Brown being gone? If Brown is definitively gone, yes, I think it's gone for one simple reason. The people who bought a membership card in the Conservative Party to vote for Patrick Brown don't have any reason to vote anymore. They're not going to bother filling the thing out if their guy's not there, or at least a large number of them will. That's where this idea that I floated before about maybe, you know, there'll be the beginnings of some sort of anybody but Kualiev now, putting more attention on this type of skullduggery does have the average member of the party saying, okay, I might have been hesitant about this candidate or that candidate, but I don't like what I'm seeing here. And I, I might just join the anybody but Poiliev camp. There's another very simple aspect to all of this as well. Does Patrick Brown have any money to hire the legal A team that he made surface last week, if he has the money somehow or the resources to hire Marie Henin and other lawyers of that strike to, to get him into court, then it could change things because it would look, it could wind up looking very badly for some people in the Conservative Party. And Zane, if, if I know anything about Patrick Brown, he certainly doesn't back down. Uh, he's tenacious, uh, but it does appear he's thrown his support to Charest, um and, and, you know, essentially said, you know, I'm 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 out of the race. Uh, do you think is there mm -hmm. any circumstance that that could change? No, I don't. I think Patrick Brown's already looking for his exit ramp, right? So he's going to try to declare victory in some way, look as a martyr, and perhaps even rightfully so, a, a martyr for um, you know trying to do the right thing, bringing in new members, but being rejected by a party that is no longer his. Use that as ammunition to run again for mayor of Brampton. 
Um, so no, I don't see any any loop back to him. This decision seems final. And to Tom's point, I don't think he's got the money. Many folks are probably listening and saying, well, okay, he's endorsed Sheree. Isn't that just a crossover? You know, I want to dig into that a bit more mm. because Tom is absolutely right, which is if you showed up for Patrick Brown, you showed up for Patrick Brown. But it's more important than that because the model of campaigning that Patrick Brown ran, which was a largely decentralized model, which meant that individuals sold to their friends and family members and told the story of why they're supporting Patrick Brown, you can't holistically port that over to a new candidate because everyone's bought into something, a stories sold to them by their friends, their family, those that they know. This wasn't a centralized operation in that regard, selling membership. So it becomes even more difficult to then say, okay, that candidate is gone because that emotional connection, that story, that sellable factor is gone. And that's one of the, the risks, I guess, of a decentralized model is that it's not that portable uh, in many ways, which you'd consider to be an asset if you're on the ballot. In this case, Patrick Brown uh, is on the ballot, but is not a candidate. Hmm. Before I let y'all go, uh, uh, uh... Prime Minister was in Kingston today, just hammered with questions about cost of living and about uh, just just how much more expensive it is to do everyday things. Um, we always hear that this is sort of the defining issue for voters. Um, as as government, it's very difficult not to get blamed for that. And Tim Powers, it seems that Pierre Polyev, for all of his other stuff, he does keep coming back to that particular issue and those particular broken things in the country that get him a lot of attention. It could be a very effective campaign for him if he wins. Most certainly. I mean, go back to what James Carville said when they were electing Bill Clinton, right? It's the economy stupid and everything else related to it. Uh, Polyev has been hitting that tone most effectively of all the politicians in the country, even though some of it is just loopy and way the hell out there, old wood, for example, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but, but, but today he's give, been given more ammunition. And look, I understand, as I think we all do, the basic tenets of monetary policy. And if you increase inflate, if you increase the interest rate, that will discourage people from spending. But that doesn't do much for people who still have a variable mortgage and have to pay it, who still have to pay uh, pay their credit card, who have to pay for bank loans. Everybody's going to be paying more at the end of this month with no relief in sight. So that's all going to be squarely put back on Justin Trudeau, whether it should be or not. And Tom Mulcair, when you're government, if you're in government, how would you try to turn that around? It's a very difficult thing, especially for an old government that, had, let's be honest, it's looking a little tired. Well, that's why I think that the Trudeau Liberals are giving themselves a big pat on the back for sealing that deal with Jagmeet Singh's NDP. I mean, it gives them another three years to try to work on turning our economy around, but it's largely dependent on the world economy. But the average Canadian, like the average German and like the average Italian, doesn't want to hear what's happening in other countries. They want to know what their government's going to do for them now. And, and Trudeau's saddled with this. And he does have a, a difficulty connecting with the average working family. He's a very good politician. He is highly skilled. But let's face it, you know, he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born with the, the whole set of silverware. And he, he was born with a motorcade. He, he doesn't connect easily with the average working family that owns a Ford F-150. And that here in Quebec, you can, it's 225 bucks to fill up your pickup. And, you know, that's what the average person is dealing with. A bag of groceries is 100 bucks instead of a, a grocery order being 100 bucks. And it's tough. And people are having trouble getting by. And yes, they will blame their government. Now, some governments have been playing 
being clever with it. Here in Quebec, Legault has been sending $500 checks to everybody. And he's promising another one if Quebecers are smart enough to reelect him in October. It's called buying votes with people's own money. Wow. So Trudeau doesn't seem to have any of that stuff now. He's got, you know, he's got to have, have much more tight-fisted approach because he knows that he's already overspent, uh, you know, he's spent more in the past couple of years than we, we you know, spent in the history of Confederation. So he knows that he's got tougher times coming. Austerity doesn't get you out of these problems. But if you continue to spend, you're just stoking inflation. So he knows what the formula is. He's in a tough bind right now. He's going to have trouble convincing people in the short term that he gets it. In the longer term, he's going to just keep hoping to get lucky and that by the time the next election rolls around, things will be better. Zane, do you think, final thought to you, uh, we don't have much time, I apologize, but do you think, uh, if it is Pierre Polyev, do you think it will be Justin Trudeau or is he out the door? And what does that mean? No, I, I think it will be Justin Trudeau I, I, for for a myriad of reasons. I I don't think there's a better gig waiting for Justin Trudeau if he were to leave, let's say, in the next 12 to 24 months. Um, I mean, he is prime minister of Canada, and, and I think he wants to be the longest serving one, or at least a, a modern record for that. So I think it's going to be Justin Trudeau. I also don't think that any of the other individuals that are being speculated, a Krista Freeland or a Mark Carney, can meet the moments that Pierre Polyev will present, which is one of... Uh, I'd say unbelievable oratory, rhetoric, prose. Uh, we're going to have a national narrative conversation uh, between the next two front-running leaders. This is going to be about storytelling. What story do you want of the future? And while I admire Christopher Freeland and Mark Carney as just two examples for their sheer tactical and policy uh, brains, they're not the orators and the storytellers that we need uh, or that the progressive side or the liberals and more particularly would need to battle a period of poly So I think there's many reasons, but I genuinely think it's, it's going to be a election whenever it happens, by the way, because we don't know how long that deal lasts. Whenever mm -hmm. it happens, it's going to be an election that tries to tell a story of this country. And the best storyteller that the liberals have is one Justin Trudeau. Zane Velji, Tim Powers, Tom Mulcair, thanks to you all. It's great to be on with you. I really Good appreciate to be with it. You, Graham. All Thank, you, Graham. Thank you, Next time I'll see you Bye -bye. in St. John's. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. That is our war room. Uh, when we come back, trouble in the CFL. What the quarterback of the Ottawa Red Blacks is alleging after a dirty hit um, that left him injured and a much larger issue, the league's response to alleged racist taunts. Stay with us. The Evan Solomon Show continues in just a moment. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Um, the CFL has got a major problem on its hands. Um, on Friday, the Red Blacks quarterback, uh, Jeremiah Masoli, uh, was hit and injured by defensive lineman for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, Garrett Marino. Um, He's out for 10 to 12 weeks. He apparently has to have surgery. Uh, it's a serious injury. Uh, many thought it was a cheap shot. Uh, he was given four games, uh, a couple for the hit, I believe, 
but also for taunting. And Mazzoli last night released an extraordinary statement on Twitter saying it's sad that the hate and racist attitudes and racial insults are going to be punished with a slap on the wrist. This is Masoli last night. One game for racial insults is simply not enough, in my opinion. And hopefully we can use the this to promote growth and change it for the better. Um, if you follow the CFL, um, you know that, I mean, Masoli is a, a big star. And we have the coach of the Saskatchewan team saying... Uh, his player's not a racist, Garrett Marino. Uh, he knows him well. And this is really um, something that has uh, gripped a lot of people in the league and surprised a lot of people. Farhan Lalji is a well-known, of course, broadcaster with TSN. I think he's covering hockey right now, but he's also, so if you hear pucks, that's what's happening. <laughs> but uh, he joins us now. Farhan, uh, thanks so much for jumping on with us. Uh, what do you make of all this? There's a lot at stake, I think, for the game uh, when you're talking about a quarterback with uh, one of the major teams saying things like this in public. Yeah, first of all, Graham, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Um, and this situation is a challenging one for all concerned, right? For Jeremiah Masoli, who was obviously aggrieved both physically and emotionally. You've got Garrett Marino on the other end, who at some point is going to, you have to believe, try to defend himself, if not the physical act, certainly words that were said. You've got uh, a team that's choosing to defend its players, probably the most high-profile team in the Canadian Football League. And, and you've, you know, you've got the Ottawa Red Blacks as well that are going to be without their best player and, and just the racial undertones that go with this. And it, look, it's, it's challenging, right, because the league... Uh, made a decision, and you know, I think the league probably would have been better served uh, or faced less criticism if they would have just said four-game suspension. They didn't right. do that because they wanted to split it up so that it could pass the appeal process in the collective bargaining agreement because nobody's ever gotten more than two games for an on-field incident. So they had to split this up in order to continue to be able to say that, that as far as the one hit on Masoli, it was only two games. But I think that was a little bit short-sighted. I, I don't think they should have gone in that direction. Now, the other challenge becomes, you talked about, they didn't use the word race. They said his heritage, right? Yeah. But for a lot of people reading between the lines, that's a nice way of saying race, right? Like, there, yeah. there's no way around that. And then Jeremiah Masoli doubles down by using racism, that word, in his comments repeatedly, right? So, very challenging situation. And, um, you know, I think more is going to come out because people are going to want to know, well, what's the difference between racism and what was said about his heritage and you know, how truly offensive were these comments? And in fairness to the league, I think a lot of sports fans or, you know, hockey fans, you know, it's only four games. Well, if you look at the CFL schedule, that's a significant suspension, we should point out. I mean, that's a good chunk of the year. It's a shorter schedule. But when you have the coach basically coming up and saying he's not a racist, um, you know, like in other sports, any kind of taunt like that is absolutely unacceptable, could mean an ejection for the entire season. Well, you, look, you're right, but these are the hairs that we're trying to split, right? There's a difference between being racist and saying something racist for many of us. And, and, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but this is the nuance that everybody tries to navigate depending on what side of the line that you're on. So in the case of 
Um, you know, uh, John Murphy. So John Murphy was a CFL executive that was with the Toronto Argonauts, and he used a, a homophobic slur last year. Now, I know John Murphy, and I don't believe him to be, at his core, racist. However, he said something, or sorry, not racist. I don't believe him to be homophobic. Right. However, he did say something that way. So you have to be accountable for that. And that, rightly or wrongly, like he got punished, rightfully so. He's been punished for indefinitely. It's going to be at least a full season, but he doesn't have a union backing him up. He doesn't have a collective bargaining agreement that he can hide behind or, or, or have to defend him, right? So let's go back to Jacob Panetta and Jordan Subban, the hockey players in the East Coast League. Yeah. You know, really ugly incident this year. So here's what I learned from all of that. You know, Graham, I actually believed what um, what Jacob Panetta said. You know, so when the whole incident happened, he said after the fact, look, I was not trying to be racist. You know, I've got all these relationships that show that I'm not racist. I've never shown racism in my life. I'm not racist. This was meant to be a tough guy pose, not some sort of racial monkey gesture. And I, I believed him. Mm-hmm. And I put that out there on Twitter, feeling that as a person of color, that I, I could, you know, I could say that. Whereas if you weren't of color, you, you were instantly going to get criticized. And I got criticized. And what I learned through that whole process is this. It doesn't matter what your intent is because you don't walk in the shoes of the person who received the comments, right? We don't know their context, but ultimately, if we are going to make the statement, we are responsible for how they receive it. And if they're offended and aggrieved, we are then responsible for that. That's the, the world we live in, and that's not wrong. So you have to understand, even in the heat of the battle, that you can't just say anything and say, well, no, 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 that was just something I said. It's not really who I am. You may be telling the truth that it's not who you are, but you still have to be responsible for how that person took it. So we don't know, you know, Jeremiah Masoli, you know, what he's been through on the race front to have been offended the way he was, because I'll tell you, I know what the comments are. And if, if you hear them, there will be a portion of people that say, boy, that wasn't that bad, was it? Mm. But your that portion of people is not Jeremiah Masoli, mm. right? There'll be a portion of people that'll say, yeah, it was offensive, but was it actually racist? But you're not Jeremiah Masoli. So have you reported is, it, Farhan? Have you reported no, what it is? I, I, I haven't. Um, yeah, I have. Okay, I won't and, press you because uh, yeah, it, it, that's just that's and, not and where it's, I want to it's, go. It, yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. But I, I take your point, and and but in this realm. Professional athletes and the issue of race. Um, when, when the when the target s- says it's racist, that changes the story and the pressure on the league, because clearly he is saying he believes this is a slap on the wrist and that the CFL is is taking racism too lightly. And it's 2022. That's pretty extraordinary. They're going to have to deal with this in some way. Like this is not over. If they no, think it is. No, you're right. And, the, you know, the uh, the riders will comment on his post from yesterday. That'll happen today. Garrett Marino, in all likelihood, is going to come out and say something today and attempt to defend himself. And the league, by specifying one game for insensitive m- remarks about heritage, you know, which, again, implies race because the CFL did say that, that we believe that was said. Yeah, they're going to have to wear it as opposed to if it was all absorbed into a four-game thing and they didn't specify that. It might have been a little bit different. But, yeah, I understand why Jeremiah Masoli feels the way he does. And, and you are right. If the person that heard the comment was, you know, aggrieved by it and viewed it as an act of race or a hate, you know, hate speech or however you want to say it, everybody associated with it from Garrett and Reno, the riders and the CFL have to live with it. And they're going to have to, uh, you know, explain and accept why it was only one game 
if it was anything at all. And so I, I agree with you that if, if people determine it to be a racial remark and the person that heard it on the other end, because really that's all that matters, right? That's what I said, that if you, the person that's aggrieved, his interpretation of the comment matters. Everybody else has to wear that. And the league acknowledged it, so now they're going to have to wear it. You're totally right. It's only going to get worse. Farhan, great to have you on. Um, thanks so much for this. Good to talk to you, my friend. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Um, nuanced. And it's not as straightforward. And I, I, I'm I'm interested that Farhan knows what was said. And if we're all thinking it is a blatantly racist term, he did not see it as that. And he's a person of color. But his point is that doesn't matter. If the quarterback of the Ottawa Red Blacks took it as racist and an attack, a racist attack on him, the league has to do something about that. And what Mazzoli is saying is that they're not doing enough with a one-game suspension and calling it a comment on his heritage. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment. Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is one of those stories that we love finishing the show with. It just um, just grabs you. Adam Gillen um, had given up hope. He was on the streets for four years in Edmonton, struggling with drugs, thought he'd never see his family again. Goes into a dumpster, looking around, finds a picture of Bambi pawns it at an antique shop for $20. He says he was just going to get some drugs. It turns out it was an original animation cell from the Disney movie. Um, Alex Archbold picked it up and then sold it for $3,600. Alex said he didn't feel right keeping all that money and he wanted to find Adam because he wanted to share the money with him because he'd heard where it came from. He took him two weeks and he found him, gave him half the money. They, Adam gave him the money, uh, got the money and he, he just couldn't believe it. From there, a GoFundMe, $18,000 raised and the road to sobriety back to his family and off the streets. Both Adam and Alex are on the line with me now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Hello. Thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Adam, you're now back in London, is that right? That's correct. And when you look back on this, this was four years ago. Did you know this was a moment? Um, I knew it was something special that that had happened, um, considering like all the support from a lot of people all over the place. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, it was... Uh, Life-changing, that's for sure. Yeah. You got on a train. You got reconnected with your family and your kids. You started a business. You're back on your feet. Yep. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, Alex, and you're still in touch. Um, what about you when you found out that Sal was worth that much money? What what, what went through your mind? Um, what what The first thing that went through my mind is, oh, man, this, this thing is real and... I have to find him. I mean, it was almost instant. I knew I had to find him and, and get him 
a, a proper share, a better share. And I hadn't sold it at that time, but I knew that whatever it went for, I wanted to make sure he got a bigger cut yeah. and uh, ultimately uh, ended up giving everything uh, to him. But um, yeah, I knew it had, I knew how to make things right. Um, and your point in all of this is that there are thousands of people who appear to be lost on our streets. And sometimes it's a jolt like this that leads to something better and recovery. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it was a very, ultimately very simple thing. Like it only took me, well, it did take me a couple of weeks to find him again. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but when I did, it was a matter of reaching out to the right people who could help get him some ID and then booking a ticket and getting in contact with his family. And at the end of the day, it was, um, the day that was, I think probably the biggest impact was the getting his license and getting the ticket and the hotel room and all that and getting him in a direction, um, that was like, you know, 48 hours uh, to really change or help to change somebody's life. That It was very, very simple at the end. Um, but, I, you know, the hard work was the, the last four years, and that's what Adam did. Mm. What's the, what has been the hardest part, Adam, of the last four years? Because people, people who are not facing the challenges you faced often look at this, these situations um, and feel despair and hopelessness that 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 it, it's very very difficult to get out of that cycle. You've done it. Um, wh- what was it really like, and what what was the hardest part of it? Um, well, it's, it's still a bit of a struggle, just uh, like uh, being in recovery um, is uh, been a bit of the well, like the most part of the struggle. It's, um, yeah, but. Yeah, it doesn't end. Um, I appreciate that. It, it's a, it's a constant. It, it's constant work. Yeah, um, but the small rewards that like, uh, I'm trying to reward myself in other ways, and uh, just getting through day to day, and like accomplishing just a day of sobriety, and then feeling the the you know the satisfaction at the end of the day, knowing I didn't you know stumble back. Um, it's a good feeling. Yeah. Every day, just kind of just day by day. Yeah. If this didn't happen, what do you think would have happened to you? Uh, It was getting pretty rough. Like, it's hard. It's hard to say. Like, I, I know. Like, some of the went. Like, it was getting pretty rough on the winters and. um, Four years on the streets of Edmonton. Yeah. 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 That's uh, about as rough as you can get. Yeah. What do you think, Alex? Like, was this, uh, are you a religious person? Was this a sign? <laughs> or uh, just right place, right time, right connection? I think it's just, you know, religion, anybody should hopefully know that if somebody comes in and there's an opportunity to help them in that way, that, you know, why not try? You know, and I guess that's where we were at was, you know, um, my wife and I had started a business and we were kind of just getting our feet wet in the business ourselves. And that would have been quite a big thing for my wife and I, too. But re- regardless of that thing coming in, the Bambi stuff, I just knew in my heart that it was it was meant for Adam and any help I could offer him. Um, it just felt like the right thing to do. So maybe right place, right time, but maybe right the, the right two people connecting, too. And you guys are still in contact. Is that right? Oh, yeah, 100%. All the time. 
We wish you nothing but the best, uh, both of you, uh, Adam and Alex. We love the story. Obviously, we've uh, done a lot on it, and we'll continue to watch it. And there, there's nothing like uh, a little bit of hope uh, in a in a world that seems to lack the hope <laughs> quite a bit. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, welcome. my pleasure. Hey, if you need drywall in London, check out Pillar. <laughs> That's Pillar, Adam. Pillar drywall. Yeah. yeah. How do you spell it? Pillar, P-I-L-L-A-R, Just drywall. Pil- Pillar drywall. There you go. There's a plug. Nothing wrong with that. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Have a good one. Have a good day. That's, um, that's quite a story, you know. And in all of our cities, wherever you're listening, vulnerable people have stories to tell. They have families. They've uh, fallen and slipped. And it's easy to dismiss uh, those people and their stories and their history and just say there's nothing you can do. And wow, if Alex had not done that, um, Adam may not have been pulled up, right? Uh, it takes a uh, pretty extraordinary move by him. But at the same time, as he says, it wasn't that onerous. It wasn't that difficult. It was a little thing that made a huge difference. If you talk to people helping people in this field, things like um, help with ID, help with establishing bank accounts, help with the basics to, first of all, get an apartment or get off the street, and then to furnish the apartment with normal things. All of that helps with recovery and leads and can lead to rejoining society in some way. Um, And clearly, um, Adam's done that. He didn't think he'd ever see his family again, and now he's got a drywall business, and he's still sober. Knowing, of course, that it's not easy and it's a struggle, and it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily going to end. But for him, that's a happy ending, and that's a happy ending of the Evan Solomon Show. We'll talk tomorrow. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Have a great one.